Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, specialists from the Upstate New York Poison Center go over vaping and trends they've noticed in drug use. When you heat up chemicals, they change structures, and so in some of the liquids they had found, it changes into formaldehyde, as an example, which is used in embalming fluid. And we meet the new chief of pediatrics at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, who knew even before he started medical school that he wanted to be a pediatrician. Pediatric emergency medicine in particular, I chose because it does cover all kinds of things. So I'm not a lung specialist or a kidney specialist. I see lung stuff and kidney stuff and lots of other things too. To me, it's the good stuff in pediatrics and exciting. So it's been a really good, really good fit. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore drug abuse trends and what's happening with vaping with specialists from the Upstate New York Poison Center. But first, we'll meet Dr. Gregory Connors, the new chief of pediatrics overseeing the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. The Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital has a new leader, and he's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Welcome, Dr. Gregory Connors. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here this morning. Well, I'd like to start by introducing you. Um, If I understand correctly, you're a native of Pittsburgh in the Rochester area. You went to Amherst College in Massachusetts, and then you got your medical degree from SUNY Stony Brook, right? Those are right, yeah. Um, Your residency in pediatrics and then a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. And then you also have a master's of public health and a master's of business administration, you come to Upstate by way of Kansas City, Missouri, where you worked at Children's Mercy Hospital, which is part of the Up, uh, University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine. Wow, you've been reading about me. Thanks. <laughs> well, welcome to Syracuse. Thanks. So what drew you to pediatrics in the first place? Oh, well, it was kind of an easy decision. Um, I actually, if you looked at my medical school applications, they don't say I want to go to medical school. They say I want to be a pediatrician. So that was oh. something I wanted to do from the beginning. In fact... As you, as you mentioned, I went to Stony Brook, and I later found out that of my class of 196 people didn't know what they wanted to go into when they started medical school, and I was one of the four who did. I knew I wanted to be in pediatrics. So why? I guess I've always been a kid guy, you know, kind of making friends with kids, sitting at the kids' table at family events, you know, that kind of thing. I think I just kind of blessed or, or, or um, learned along the way just to have a good rapport with the kids. So I think I get along well with kids and they get along well with me. Um, the trick actually was dealing with, you know, parents and families. Right, there's it's not just kids. Right. And when that started working out well too, I said, you know, I'm gonna go into pediatrics. It seemed like a good way to blend um, kind of a kid interest, kid being a kid friendly guy, and then also the the science and the helping people aspects of that I was looking for in a career too. I tell you what, it's been working out pretty well so far. So, <laughs> and it's especially it's kind of general. I mean, you cover all sorts of things within pediatrics. Right, so, right. Yeah. And and uh, pediatric emergency medicine in particular, I chose because it does cover all kinds of things. So I'm not a lung specialist or a right. you know a kidney specialist. I see lung stuff and kidney stuff and lots of other things too. To me, it's the good stuff in pediatrics and exciting. So it's been a really good, really good fit. Well, I know in your background too, you're involved in, you've been involved in a lot of research along the way. Is that, because I wonder why you would want to lead a, an academic children's hospital. Yeah. Um, after training, sort of the career aspect, you know, the real job stuff, being real interested in being what I would call a professor, meaning mm-hmm. taking care in the medical school context. So people, when you think of professor, you think of an educator and definitely interested in that and also doing research and interested in that. But also, of course, taking care of patients as a substantial portion. And those are kind of the three missions of a medical school in general. And so I really embraced all of those. So for me, it was a it was a real nice fit. Um, as far as research, maybe we'll talk more about it later. But I had uh, thought of research before my training years as something you did in a, like a laboratory or maybe a... Um, 
trying you know trying one medication against another medication in a real for, in, in a randomized clinical trial, real real strict setting and all that wasn't for me. But it turns out there's whole other kinds of research that I didn't know about that really kind of uh, attracted me as a trainee. So I was interested in learning more about doing that kind of stuff. That's what led to my master's in public health was really training, and I thought of it as a research degree, learning how to how to do that kind of research better. So. Neat. Well, now that you're in central New York and in the community here, what do you see as the top pediatric concerns here in this community? Uh, well, and I, I, I guess I, I want to talk about the Children's Hospital in the context of that. Um, the, I think that, that uh, pediatrics, actually this has happened in many communities, but pediatrics, especially hospital-based pediatrics, in this part of the state has really become focused on the at the Goldstone Children's Hospital. A lot of the other hospitals in town that used to do some sort of simple in in hospital pediatrics have quit doing that. They've moved on to other things, kind of conceding the pediatric uh, hospital market to us, mm-hmm. which is which is great. We feel like we're the experts, um, but we have to be really good at just about everything now because we're the ones doing it. Um, and lots of pediatricians in town, and I don't mean that we're the only ones doing pediatrics. But I mean, the hospital-based care in general. Sure. And, and you asked me something earlier that I didn't really completely answer yet, which is why I would want to lead a setting like that. But and I think that the reason is that it's because it's really important to the community and to the children in particular. And I just I, f- I feel a passion for helping the um, helping the kids. Like I said, I'm you know I'm a kid guy, but but I really want to do right by children and families. And I could see that that different children's hospitals in different cities are different. In different places, but this one seemed like it had a nice fit for me. And, and as you mentioned, I'm from the, the region, and so it had special special meaning for me. Um, so some of the things that I really want to work on, and I think we can work on. Number one is space. The um, the as you look at the children's hospital from the street or from outside, I think I think of the children's hospital as being the whole medical center, anywhere that there's kids being taken care of. But I think a lot of people look at it as being the thing that you see when you look at it from the street. The treehouse part. The treehouse part, the 11th and 12th floor. And they are beautiful, um, wonderful class. There are patient rooms, which are great. But I don't know if everybody knows, but there's aquaria and there's play things and there's classrooms. So kids who are in the hospital for a while can continue to go to school. and All kinds of, all kinds of that's just one example, all kinds of special things like that. And I really love those. Um, but we have 71 beds for kids, and we probably need more. <laughs> so I want to figure out a way pretty to, full a lot of the times. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's pretty common to have, well, 71 or maybe 66. And the other few beds that are open are not just general beds. They're specific for certain things, mm-hmm. so we can't use them that well. So we, need, we really need to consider how we can grow in a, in a way that doesn't throw away our, our wonderful resources that we currently have, but, you know, expands them. I'll also just tell you that... Um, kind of the twin concerns of mental health in children and teens and de- twinned with developmental disabilities. I'm thinking about like autism and those sort of things. Mm-hmm. They're both, they're both to me, they're related, and you can see how they're both kind of uh, 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 in the realm of developmental pediatricians or psychiatrists, psychologists, and they both seem to be growing, either more, either more recognized or actually occurring more, or both. And so we're really, really stressed with dealing with, with both of those growing entities. And we really need to not throw up our hands and say, wow, this is terrible, but figure out a way to embrace that. I mean, I think we're doing really well with other things, but let's embrace taking care of those patients who can be rough to take care of and, uh, and learn how to do it better. So um, as a pediatric emergency physician in particular, I see lots of emergency department visits here at Upstate and other places. So this is common all across the country. Every day, patients with autism and in some kind of crisis or suicidality, depression, anxiety, those kind of things. And they're, they're big, big issues here, so we really need to address those. Okay. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Gregory Connors. He's the new professor and chair of pediatrics at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, which... I should say, the Children's Hospital is turning 10 this year. Um, And in some ways, it's hard to imagine what life was like here in Syracuse without a dedicated children's hospital. We've added in 10 years pediatric specialists and services we didn't have before. Um, But of course, medicine is an ever-evolving field. So 
let me ask you what you foresee in the near future in terms of changes and improvements. Sure, well, and we're very excited about the 10th anniversary and having some uh, birthday celebrations to, to, to honor it. And of course, I wasn't here then 10 years ago when it was started, but I've heard enough that I feel like I know what, what went on and what some of the, the struggles and challenges and, and, and successes were from that period. So I'm really interested in continuing to grow that legacy um, and trying to look forward for the next 10 years and beyond. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that comes to mind when I think about that is it is some of the really specialized areas of pediatrics and, and medicine in general. We're getting, you know, primary care, general care of kids is always going to be there and hugely important. But along the way, we're getting more and more sophisticated in how to take care of certain things that we never could care for before. The problem is that they had they, they sometimes are... are very high tech, very expensive, and sometimes there's not a lot of patients who need that sort of care right in the Syracuse area, enough that it's that it makes sense to have a, a specialist or two or three or the big machines that take care of those kind of patients in every single city. Sure. So have one in Buffalo, have one in Rochester, have one in Syracuse, have one in Albany, and, get to, and so forth. So what we're working on, and it's not easy, is to regionalize, that's the word, to group together so that there are ways to take care of kids with really high-tech needs or very specialized needs without, having, without making them travel to Seattle or somewhere like that, we can, we can get together. And be, between all of us in upstate New York, we can work together to regionalize care for some of these important but not really common or high-tech um, needs. And we're actually starting to do that. Actually, on Friday, the, the um, leaders of the children's hospitals uh, well, me, but then also in Albany and then in Rochester and Buffalo. We're all getting together to talk about this in, in Rochester. But we've already been working together, and fortunately we all know each other and we're, um, we're able to work together on that. As you might imagine, there's a lot of pride in running your own place and, sure. and being freestanding and autonomous and saying we're good enough on our own. But I think it's important to realize that we're great, but there are some areas that it's not a matter of greatness, it's a matter of economies of scale and doing the right things for patients. So I think we can work together to be proud of what we can do collectively, just like we can do independently. And we're not just making this up. There are other places that are doing the same kind of things. And I think this is what the future holds for uh, you know a, a, a medium to smaller sized city like Syracuse. Well, it seems like it would require a lot of collaboration. And yeah. if you're doing that, you know, good things will come. Yeah, and you know, communication and other things, being willing to to work together, and maybe let someone else take the lead on something, which is which can be a little bit hard on the ego and the pride, but we need to work together so that we're all on the same team. Well, the leader of an academic children's hospital has basically four areas on which to concentrate, providing medical care, providing education, conducting research, and being a good community partner. So let's talk about what you've learned about these areas um, you know, since you've been here. Are the kids in central New York who need medical care getting it in the appropriate place? Um, I know you've done research and written papers about the importance of, they call it the medical home. Yeah, so the medical home is a really important concept, and sometimes even better to call it the patient-centered medical home, which is a certain kind of credentialing that, that is actually a national credential that's not easy to get. But and the reason I mention it is that Upstate Pediatrics, uh, the Department of Pediatrics here at Upstate has two primary care centers. One is called Upstate Pediatric and Adolescent Center, and the other is called Upstate Pediatrics. That one's in Baldwinsville. The first one is right around the corner from the University Hospital building. Both of those are, are accredited patient-centered medical homes, which was not easy to do, both to get and then to keep the accreditation. But it's, it's the right thing. It reflects that we're doing the right things, involving patients and their families in kids' care rather than ordering them to do this and do that. And also flexibility of scheduling and, and so forth. I think we're doing the right thing for primary care of, of kids. We also are partnering with primary care physicians in the community, pediatricians, and then family practitioners and other folks, too, who take care of kids. Um, you mentioned the four things that, that an academic children's hospital needs to focus on, and I agree, but I think you had them in the right order, too, in that the providing medical care seems to always come first. And, I'll, and I've been leading the children's hospital now for three months and two days, and I would say I've spent you know, three quarters of that time or more focusing on this, um, 
the, the, the actual provision of medical care to children and making sure that we, that we get it right. Um, there's also, along with providing primary care, as I just mentioned, we have lots of you know, specialists in the various body parts and, and uh, ICU spe specialists and like myself, emergency specialists and so forth. Interestingly, we, we have to study and take care, make, really pay attention to doing this right, how we interact with primary care physicians and families who send their patients to us to manage a certain problem and then not taking over but helping the primary care physician deal with this problem, helping the family deal with this problem or challenge and then sending them back to the primary care physician in, in a way that enhances communication so we're smoothly. We aren't trying to be part of the medical home. We're trying to be part of what some people call the medical neighborhood. Mm. So extending the concept of the medical home to mm. other folks who help out too. So, for example, uh, a patient who's cared for in a primary care setting has an emergency. They come to me. I, I help stabilize that, deal with it. Maybe child's hospitalized for a few days. And then we send the child back to the primary care setting and we make sure that we communicate well about what happened and arrange appropriate follow-up and all that. So we can be part of the, the overall care of the child in a nice, smooth way. And I think that's, that's really important. Let me, I, I want to ask you about education and research as well, but yeah. how much do you believe, because Syracuse region, um, the poverty levels here are very high. Yeah. Uh, how much do you think that impacts the health of the children living in this community? Quite a bit. Um, I, I, I recognize that we have big income disparities here, and, and I know that from, from the medical literature and my experiences elsewhere know that this has a really dramatic effect on the health of children and families. And not just, it doesn't just show up today when patients are children, when the kids are are young, and so we see them in pediatrics. But this will affect them throughout their lives if we don't do some make some effort to mitigate them. So I'm talking about high blood pressure later on, mental health um, uh, problems. Um, so long lasting. High, blo high blood pressure, obesity, coronary vascular disease, problems with um, employment and relationship forming. Many of these can be uh, lifelong. Can be affected for for people's lives. Because of the way that they that they experienced income disparities when they were young, so I'm not saying that we can eliminate income disparities, but being aware of the health impact, we can maybe work on affecting the uh, the health impact of the of the of that go along with income disparities. So, so that's it's an important thing for us to address. I remember speaking to one of your pediatricians who started a diaper bank, um, yeah. and that just sort of gets at some of that. So. That's a great example. Yeah. yeah. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Gregory Connors. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, talking with the new professor and chair of the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Well, uh, let's get back to education. Part of the role of the pediatricians at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital is to help train the providers of the future. Um, what do the numbers look like in terms of how many medical residents and fellows and other pediatric providers are being trained each year? Sure. So, so Upstate, of course, has a medical school, and every medical student I, and there are about 160 or 170, I don't remember exactly, in each class. Every medical student has a pe required pediatric rotation, and I think it's the best thing that they do in medical school, but I'm a little biased in that. <laughs> but they all do spend several weeks doing some pediatric rotation, and that's on me and my department to make sure it's as good as it can be. So we work hard on that, and we think about it all the time. Um, and then some medical students, either from upstate or more, more likely elsewhere, will come and do their pediatrics residency with us and what that is is a three-year training period in which someone goes from being a medical student or a brand new physician to becoming a, a board certified mm. pediatrician that's a three-year process called pediatric residency and we have um, 47 residents right now in our pediatrics department so some in their first year some in their second year and so forth um, to me that's the program that holds it's the glue that holds our department together 
that pediatric residents touch every aspect of what we do, and we're very proud of what we what we do. And I think that there's a great future for our residency too. We're really going to be have already started, in fact, putting some energy into doing uh, doing what we can to make it as good as we can possibly make it. Um, you mentioned fellowships as well. After residency, some someone might want to do a fellowship in a in a subspecialty like I did in pediatric emergency medicine. We have a few fellowships that we offer here at Upstate. Um, the emergency department has a pediatric emergency medicine fellowship. We also, in, in the pediatrics department, we have a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases for, for pediatricians who want to be specialists in, in managing infections in children. So after their three-year residency, they go on and do another year? Three years. Another three years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. There are some there too, but generally three years. And then they can be you know, board-certified uh, subspecialists, experts in pediatrics and in pediatric infectious diseases. And we have another one in the uh, important field of child abuse pediatrics. Mm-hmm. So for uh, for those special folks who are pediatricians but want to learn more and be able to take care of the, the really the nuances and the growing number of children who who suffer from child abuse, either physical abuse or sexual abuse or neglect, or who maybe do, and we really need to get to the bottom of things. And of course, those folks have to learn how to work with the, the law enforcement system sure. and the courts. And all. it's it's quite a specialized area that has become its own subspecialty. So we have a fellowship in that too. And um, we are also anticipating beginning a fellowship soon in pediatric hospital-based medicine. So mm. uh, it's become complex enough to take care of kids in the hospital that many of our patients are cared for by specialists in pediatric hospital-based medicine, hospitalist. So we actually are anticipating offering fellowship training in that field in the near future, too. And maybe we'll have one or two down in the future. I don't want to, I don't have the goal of turning the children's hospital into a fellowship, fellowship heavy place, but some, some logistically. Um, makes sense for. Yeah, so, yeah. Some, some that really makes sense for the place or worth, worth investing in. Well, in terms of research, um, are there areas you personally are interested in investigating? Yeah, so I, I uh, start out being interested. I, I mentioned earlier sort of steering away from test tubes and labs and that sort of thing. My first three research projects were all on how to do, how to manage kids who swallowed coins, especially pennies, and the best way to take care of them. And you'd think that would be all figured out by now because yeah, it's a pretty common thing. It's not But it turns out. out that there are lots of different ways to do it, and you can go around the country and the same patient would be cared for in different ways in different places. Really? Less so now than when I started, because I, I'm pleased to say that I've had some impact in the field, but um, I've done quite a few projects trying to figure that out. It's a real neat, accessible thing that I could talk to about with anybody, and everybody understands it. You know, what's the role of x-rays and not, and so forth. And then I've branched out into other things like button batteries and you know other things kids swallow, but actually gone beyond that. So that was how I started things out, and I've actually gone along... Uh, beyond that in terms of um, some projects looking how do we quality improvement how do we do things better take care of kids better maybe more efficiently or more smoothly or maybe eliminate some unnecessary testing that kind of thing and done quite a few in that way and then also um, the impact of real stressful situations on the emergency department or pediatric services in general Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about like an ice storm or a a big flu outbreak or some other kind of infectious diseases outbreak. And what kind of decisions do we need to make? How do we anticipate what the needs are going to be? That kind of thing. So I actually didn't intend to do that, but as I look back, I've done several projects on that too. And then random random other things uh, because I'm a curious guy and interested in lots of things. But those are some of the main areas. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Gregory Connors. He's the new professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital and I've got to ask you more about those coins, because okay. um, that's got to be a real common thing with a yeah. kid eating a, a penny or a quarter or whatever. Um, what do you What do you advise parents to do? And then I want to ask you about what um, medical providers are supposed to do. Um, so if a so so it's a pretty common thing. If a child swallows a coin and and uh, the family knows about it, which is not always the case, oh. um, then. Uh, I, you know, the first thing to do is to look at the child. If they're having trouble in any way, breathing, vomiting, can't swallow their own spit, you know, having complaining of pain, those kids should probably come to the emergency department. Um, if they seem to be doing just fine, as most do, 
I think you're still welcome to come to the emergency department, but I don't think that that's necessarily required unless the child is known to have other health problems. So but, if but your child, the, if you watch them and they swallow a penny, yeah. but they're breathing fine and swallowing fine and everything, will the penny just go through their system? Yeah, so I would suggest that that, that little kind of folks contact their primary care physician and work out a plan because the answer to your question is yes, most of the time they will, but not every time. So the so the primary care physician can help talk about what the things are to watch for and if you see them, what to do next. But, the th- you know, just in general, the things, actually what I said is, are, are the symptoms, let me just tell you that the problem, when there is a problem, is that the coin will maybe get stuck somewhere along the way. Most of the time it comes right through. And, uh, you okay. know, so um, there's a little joke about that, about watching for change in the stool. But uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, sometimes it'll get stuck somewhere, often in the throat, you know, in the esophagus. And then what you'll see is kids having pain when they swallow or refusing to swallow or maybe drooling because they can't even swallow their own secretions anymore. Um, so if you see something suggesting that something is blocking, maybe vomiting, then then that's a more urgent situation that we need to take care of. Now those are for coins. For button batteries, let me just make the point, like a watch battery, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes called a disc battery. Those, those tiny little... Tiny little things, yeah. and they really pack a powerful charge, electrical charge. Those are different. So those ones I would suggest, if your child swallows one of those, just bring them on into the emergency department. And don't wait, I would say come right in. To, because those things in a matter of hours can cause real difficulty, or a coin is not going to do that. And the same thing is true, by the way, if the battery goes in the nose or the ear or the vagina or somewhere else like that. Those we need to see pretty quickly. And they need to come out. They need to come out. Or we need to know where they are. If they're swallowed and they're working their way through, that's okay. But we need to know that that's the case. So a button battery is a little different. So with coins and you get to the emergency department, will will there be an x-ray? Will the doctor have to remove something? Typically we'll get an x-ray or two. And uh, if it is stuck somewhere, like stuck in the throat, in the esophagus, that will probably go on and get removed. Most of the time, though, we see it in the stomach or even lower, and it's on its way through, and we can just advise people, go home you can go and home, and it'll, yeah. it'll pass. But come, come back if you see this, this or that, some of the symptoms I described. So, yeah, usually an X-ray, and, and some need to be removed if they're in a problem situation, but most are not. So I know you're a father. Um, let me ask your advice for parents and grandparents who need to take a child to the emergency room. Any advice for making that visit go smoothly? Sure, sure. And you're right. I have four kids, uh, including my triplets. Um, so yeah, we've had a few visits to we have we have uh, two boys and two girls, and we've had a few visits to the emergency department ourselves. So I've been on both sides of the table on that. Um, yeah. So let's see. Advice. I would suggest that the person who, if you can, the person who brings the child into the emergency department or acute care setting, knows the story of the patient and the events that lead up to the visit. And that sort of seems obvious, but sometimes people will send a certain person who maybe somebody comes home and then they're the ones who takes them in and they don't even know what happened oh. or they don't know how sick the child has been, but it's more convenient for them. And that's okay, but you know we're going to rely... In pediatrics, you really rely heavily on the history and the story. Which and the so parent if the person usually doesn't has to know, right. uh, that is, is harder to manage. Not that we can't, but it's harder to manage. Now, you know, if the person's available by phone or something, that's okay too. But it's important for us to know what the background is to the child and to the situation. Um, I think also feeling like the person is a, is a partner with the healthcare team rather than against or conceding all, everything to the healthcare. You know, you're the doctor, do what you think. Is right, kind of. It's kind of. I think working together in a partnership. This is what I know. This is what you know. Back and forth is really the the best way to go. Um, we know a lot about sort of the body and the medical aspects. The family knows about the patient, and there is the best approach. And and given that, um, feeling free to ask questions to try to understand. I think if somebody leaves the emergency department, they don't understand what went on, and they don't know what the diagnosis was or what to do next things could have gone better. So, so we, need to, we need to work together in that way. And I do know that sometimes we think that that's the case, and it isn't. So, so it's important to really really think about that, making sure we're a team and that we all understand each other's perspectives. You'll go a lot f- further. I think an emergency department visit will be a lot better in that situation.
Okay. What do you think about the use of urgent care clinics or um, retail clinics? Sure. And I had the privilege of um, writing the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, position statement on those. So, so and being being part of the team that wrote that. And so, I uh, know a lot about it, especially in terms of kids. So. Um, first, I'll just point out the difference. Um, a retail-based clinic is a clinic that's, well, it's retail, based in a retail establishment. Often you'll see them in a, like a drugstore setting mm. or maybe a, um, a big uh, general uh, department store, and they'll be at sort of the corner where you can go and check in and be seen. So that's a retail-based clinic. And then urgent care center tends to be just that by itself. So you might, you might see those on the, on the, um, in the neighborhood, but they're not part of a bigger store within within the store and i and i mentioned that because urgent care centers tend to be a little different they tend to offer more things be more um a little higher level of care but not not to the level of an emergency department um so my answer to are those good i mean are those good places for kids or not the answer is sometimes they have to do it right uh we know that some of some of those places tend to not be skilled in the care of children sometimes, and uh, maybe overprescribed from my perspective, or, or um, not totally understand what they're getting into. Uh, many places won't see a child under a certain age or with mm-hmm. a certain story, and I really respect that that they know what their limits are and they and they will refer the child to an emergency department. So I really respect that. On the other hand, I used to run. Um, uh, three urgent care centers for children in my previous position, I oversaw those, and, and I know that we did a great job. I know that urgent care centers can do a great job for children. They just have to really have expertise and be willing to know their limits, know what they can do and what they can't do, and be really willing to communicate with back with the primary care physician. And if, if the patient is too sick or out of their league, that they know how to effectively transfer the care of the patient to an emergency department or someplace else. Um, I think that urgent care in particular can be done really well for children as long as it's done very well for children, <laughs> and, and that's kept in mind. And that's pretty much detailed in the American Academy of Pediatrics statements that I would Neat. have people refer to if they want to know more. Well, this has been a terrific conversation. I appreciate you letting the community get to know you. My guest has been Dr. Gregory Connors, the new professor and chair of pediatrics at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, which is celebrating its 10th birthday this year. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how dangerous is vaping? Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. The Food and Drug Administration and other health officials worry about an epidemic of teen nicotine addiction and e-cigarette use called vaping. Here in the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about this and other drug abuse trends in Central New York are Michelle Kaliva and Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Well, let's start with vaping and the use of e-cigarettes. Um, from what I've read, one of the companies that makes one of the better-known brands, Juul, um, they're required to show the FDA that they offer more public health benefits than risks. And there's news reports on Juul trying to recruit scientists to help them do this. So are there any public health benefits to vaping? Do you understand where they're yeah, going with that? That's a great question. And uh, one of our toxicologists, Dr. Willie Eggleston at the Poison Center, uh, mentioned to me it's it's one thing to have an adult who uses combustionable tobacco and then go to a vaping device um, that there may be be um, a better chance of less harm and less risks oh. because of the chemical changes from 
burning a product versus vaping a product. Um, but to have teenagers that have never consumed, you know, any type of tobacco product, then all of a sudden start using a vaping device, there is so much unknown about the long-term effects that uh, um, that can't be an, a, a statement that's used across the board for everyone. Does, uh, is there any thought that it would uh, be a way to get people off smoking entirely, like they would taper down from cigarettes to uh, e-cigarettes to nothing? Yeah, or- that's been the argument on the part of the companies that create the vaping devices and sell the, the juices and all. Um, but there's really not a lot of evidence out there that proves that that's true. Uh, some of the evidence that they do show in very limited studies that um, people tend to use both of them. And in the places where they can't use uh, tobacco products, they use vaping products. Um, and for youth that start out with a vaping device, as they get older, there's more of a trend for them to go to tobacco-based uh, combustionable products. Well, let me tell listeners, um, Lee, you're the public education coordinator, and Michelle, you're the administrative director at the Upstate New York Poison Center. Now, how big of a problem or a concern are e-cigarettes in central New York? Well, we believe that it's a significant concern because Lee keeps getting invited to speak at the local high schools. Um, So the the principals of the schools, the administrators clearly see it as an issue. Um, the, the invitations are numerous, and okay. probably three or four times a week, Lee is doing a program. Well, is, is nicotine the problem? I mean, wh- why are they dangerous? Well, um, they're dangerous in the sense as to they've been marketed specifically to teenagers because of the flavor trap. And it doesn't have all the undesirable effects that tobacco does. Um, That uh, I think one of the major appeals with the younger generations is the technology aspect, is that uh, the the devices are sleek, they're attractive, uh, they can just pull it out of their pocket vape off of it, put it right back in the pocket. You can't do that with a cigarette or a cigar or something in that sense. But they sell it on the flavoring aspect. And the marketing, in particular from Juul, which um, had been uh, cited for this, is that they use uh, the social media uh, to promote their products. And uh, kids look at all the different flavors and how they name the flavors. They make it attractive and interesting so that kids go, well, it's only flavor, it's only water. And what they don't tell them is all the synthetic chemicals that go into the manufacturing of it. And it's that unknown piece is why I get calls from school districts all around New York State to ask me to come in and speak to the entire student body or to speak to parents uh, because they're the ones that really are unaware of what is actually in the product. Well, if you listen to some of the kids who are vaping, they say that it's harmless, that it's just vapor. You know, it's not, it's not like cigarette, it's just vapor. What's the big deal? So there is oh. harmless or harmful chemicals. Yes, when the chemicals have been analyzed, and even some of the products that claim no nicotine um, in it, there still are traces of nicotine that's in it. But when you heat up chemicals, they change structures. And so in some of the liquids, they had found it changes into formaldehyde, as an example, which is used in embalming fluid, or some of the other chemicals, which are humicants, uh, that are used in hand lotions. And those products are specifically in there to reduce the harshness when they're vaping. Uh, in even the flavoring, the flavoring is legal to be used in products that are consumed uh, that we eat every day. It was never designed to be heated up and then breathed into the lungs. So there's a lot of science that still has not been completed on these products. And then you've seen some poisonings from the e-cigarette liquids too, right? When they've been accidentally ingested by little kids? Yes. I mean, um, you know, notably we, there, there was a case and I think it, it, it was in the papers and the news outlets talked about it, a little two-year-old that, that picked up the container of nicotine and drank it because it's flavored. 
So it, it's appealing. But it isn't even just that case. There's lots of cases where we'll get a phone call where a child has picked it up and, and taken a swallow, and nicotine is harmful to, to kids. Okay. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two experts from the Upstate New York Poison Center, Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore. So while you're here, I also want to talk with you about some of the other drug abuse trends that you're seeing now in central New York. Um, what are what are the other issues we've got going on? Well, you know, piggybacking on the whole vaping, it's not always nicotine that's in the e-cigarette devices. So um, I hear from folks that work on college campuses that ketamine is often um, in, in the e-cigs instead of nicotine, and, and ketamine is a very dangerous drug to use and misuse. So that's the, you know, that's the other issue. What's actually going into the e-cigs? We know that so the synthetic marijuana products are often, regular marijuana is often in the e-cigs. And that's a little bit difficult to detect. So an individual may say they're just vaping, but they're not just vaping. They're actually um, abusing and misusing various types of, of drugs, illicit drugs. What is ketamine? So, you know, ketamine is actually a very good drug. We use it uh, in healthcare all the time for conscious sedation. But when it's misused and abused, it actually can cause some pretty significant symptoms. A person can become very agitated. Um, they get disassociative effects. So they, they no longer can sense or perceive danger. So they may think they can pick up a car or they may think they can fly. It's, it's a really terrible drug to, to use. A very popular drug, unfortunately, right now to misuse. Wow. Okay. And then synthetic marijuana. Synthetic marijuana has never gone away. It's still there. I think when we look at the emerging drugs, it's important to to note that certainly the the abuse and misuse of opioids is still present. Um, The good news that I can tell you is that we have uh, less deaths associated with straight opioid um, abuse right now because a lot of people are being trained in Narcan. And we're really pleased that there's so many people out there that now have Narcan kits available. So we're seeing less and less deaths. And the Narcan is used to reverse if someone's overdosing to halt that and reverse it. Yeah, it kicks the opioid off the the receptor sites in in, in the brain and it will reverse it. But even though there's not as many deaths, there's people are still misusing. And they're doing something interesting with it. They're using the opioids in in conjunction with, let's say, cocaine or in conjunction with methamphetamine or in conjunction with some other type of synthetic drug. So now when they overdose, they're presenting with a pretty mixed clinical presentation. So they'll have all the, the uh, stimulant pres- clinical effects as well as all the depressant clinical effects. So that's where we're seeing, you know, really bad, sad outcomes. It's that combination. That's got to be hard to take care of someone. You might reverse them with Narcan, but then they still have then you're still dealing with the cardiac effects and all uh-huh. the other effects. Yes, it's a bit of a, of a challenge. And unfortunately, um, I love the summer, but I hate this type of year because this seems to um, be the time of year where people come together and music fests and, and various activities, and there's a lot of experimenting, and it's those synthetic drugs that, like even synthetic fentanyl and a whole host of them that um, are just getting passed around and tried without any real awareness of how dangerous they actually are. So, Lee, are we seeing this at the music festivals in Syracuse and central New York? Are we seeing drugs being passed around? Yeah, you can find drugs anywhere at any event. And part of what Michelle is uh, referring to when someone talks about the drug ecstasy or molly or MDMA, um, whatever they want to call it, uh, those are some of the popular ones because for 5 or $10, they can get a couple of tabs or pills or capsules and they enjoy the music. It enhances the music experience. Um, However, these are chemicals that are interacting with the brain and interrupting how the brain runs the body through the central nervous system. So they're taking a drug that they have no idea what's in it. And perhaps most of the time, the person selling the drug has no idea what's in it. And from the Poison Center perspective, we find out about it when the person presents to the emergency room. So, and the person has problems right then, whatever, whether they're not breathing right or their heart is not beating the way it should be, but 
do these drugs have the potential to cause lasting damage? Well, that's a good question, and I think that, you know, I say yes or no. We don't quite know the research on that. I mean, we really haven't seen, although when I talk to folks anecdotally, I will hear that, that um, for example, those individuals that had psychotic events with the basalts back mm -hmm. a few years are still showing residual effects. So, again, still some research on that, but, you know, again, as, as Lee points out, you're messing up chemical pathways and you're, you know, you're altering um, the brain function and you would expect that there's going to be some long-term sequelae from that. So what sorts of lingering, like memory problems or? Um... Well, first of all, what doesn't often go away without treatment is the desire for more. Yeah. So you, you know, you try it and you experiment, it feels great, and then the next time you want something even stronger. Those opioid receptors in the brain love this stuff, and they're constantly looking for that additional high, that additional fix. So that's one component of it. Um, but again, you know, people that have mental health issues or have underlying psychosis, and if these drugs bring that out or lower the threshold, they could, you know, continue to have mental health issues as, as time goes on. Well, let me ask you, um, getting back a little bit to the e-cigarettes, are there legislative actions um, in place to try to curb some of the uh, misuse? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the trends in New York State was uh, between the years of 2014-2018, there was a 160% increase in uh, vaping product use uh, reported by high school students. Um, when we look at some of the national data through the American Association of Poison Control Centers, uh, about 2014, the product was really popular and there were over 4,000 calls. And as of 2018, it was down to 3,000. Um, are people getting used to the product? Are they not calling about the poison center? Those are important pieces. Legislative action, New York State is considering banning flavoring for e-cigarettes. And there are 49 states that um, in the United States that have some sort of legislative action uh, towards uh, e-cigarettes, either banning the use of, the flavoring, or raising the age. There are seven states that the age is 21 to be able to be legally buy these products. And New York State is one of the states that is considering raising the age to 21 for uh, tobacco and e-cigarette products. So right now in New York State, there's not an age limit, or is it? 18. 18. So you have to be 18 to buy the device, and I assume the liquids, too. Yes. Uh, and that's if you walk into a store to buy it. Um, online, we know that there's many ways to get around it. Um, you click a button, say, yes, I'm 21, and maybe you put a false date in. Um, and uh, where parents, um, kids will get gift cards, and they act like a credit card, they use those to buy the products online, so they don't have to, uh, you know, give up a bank account information or have an actual credit card. So we try to look at all the conveniences, and then uh, there's always the popular, hey, how can I use this sure. to buy something that I shouldn't be buying? Well, well, this has been very good information from both of you. I thank you for, for being here. My guests have been Administrative Director Michelle Kaliva and Public Education Coordinator Lee Livermore from the Upstate New York Poison Center. Thank you both. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poetry gives voice to those we might otherwise not hear or even ignore. Diane Silvestri is a Massachusetts poet and author of the chapbook Necessary Sentiments. Here is her poem, A Club for Us Who Almost Died, whose readjustment to living continues not as we imagined it would, and who mostly wish no change would ever have been required. I will gather us so we can commiserate on our losses, our jobs, our beauty, 
freedom to act spontaneously and travel without risks. And we will understand each other as we lament stunted energy and sex that isn't what it used to be, all knowing that those outside our club focus only on the miracle we are still around and how grateful we must feel to be living or looking like it. In a similar vein, poet Rob Jacques from Washington State offers us a sonnet about old age. Invisible Becomes Visible opens with an epigram from Sun Tung Po. Lately, I've developed a taste for the quiet life. I think how we could lie and talk together through the night. Come, darling, come and ignore with me the smug, the smart, the young unkind, who think us out of place and in their way, who shrink from sitting with us, who mind our taking our time in line for this or that, who speak loud enough, loud enough for us to hear them say, those old fools don't know where they're at, and who believe us superfluous in our decay. Come, stand up, take my arm, my sleeve, as we teeter, nothing sweeter nor more heroic, as we wobble a bit unsteadily, but firmly on to wherever we will, we too, indivisible, stoic. Look, love, how the invisible becomes visible when we take our time, slowly becoming gone. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a new treatment for bladder cancer. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.